morning, good morning. Oh, this is such a good service. I'm so excited. Uh, if you're brand new, welcome. My name is Danny, and I am actually one of the real pastors here at Kesset Church. So uh, in case you're wondering, I'm excited that you're here, excited that you're here. Uh, we're launching a new series today called Coram Deo, and I just I want to give a little bit of preface uh, and also some thankfulness to you guys. Um, this whole year has been so up and down as a church with changes, uh, almost all of them good, that it's been kind of hard to plan from the pulpit what we're going to do. Normally, we would all know like a year in advance, hey, we're going to be in this book or we're going to be doing this kind of teaching. But with the changes, with the blessing of the building and then the, 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 the raising of the funds and all the different things that God has been doing, it's, we kind of wanted to stay in the nuance and really be able to respond with fluidity from the pulpit. And that's what we've done. This series, uh, exactly that. Uh, when we did the Visible series, talking about each other and how we relate, we also shared a few of the attributes of God with the church. And we got a whole bunch of people who said, well, I didn't know that about God. I didn't know that about God. I didn't know that about God. So then we responded with this little series, Coram Deo, which means the face of God. We're going to spend three weeks talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, today, of course, being Father. And the concept comes from you guys and from the questions that are being asked. But we won't always be quite this... Uh, uh, sporadic with our teaching. We know that uh, for the next series, we're going to do something called With, and I don't want to get too much into it, but it's for the, the Thanksgiving season. It's going to be really cool. And then for Christmas, we're going to do a series called Chorus, and we're going to have a full live choir all four weeks of the Christmas season. And then in January right now, it looks like we're going to get back into our book teaching, probably with the book of Acts. And uh, I say probably because if something changes, <laughs> Um, I, I want to not be trapped by all of you who are writing it down, you know, in your blood that that's when we're going to start Acts. So uh, I do believe that's what's going to happen. I feel really good about it. I think we'll also take a few, uh, uh, a couple different tangents out of that, especially when we do our move in to the building uh, sometime next year. So there'll, there'll be some one-offs and there'll be some other small series. But overall, I just, I wanted to appreciate you as a church and you as a family. And, and just, I mean, it's just been amazing all the flexibility we've been able to to have here, but that's why sometimes you don't find out till a week ahead of time what we're doing next. We're really, we really are trying to respond to this change that God is leading. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's what we're doing today. Great? Great. Yeah? Jan, you good? Do you have any questions? Okay. Let's do this. You ready? You warmed up? Because I'm going to talk fast today, Jan, and I'm going to be so funny. So, so I, I really expect some humorous sign language. You guys? Yeah? You ready? All right. <laughs> I only want humorous sign language, Jan. If it's not funny, don't, don't do it. So let me pray for us. <laughs> Lord, be with us. Uh, we thank you, God. We can come together. We can talk about you. We can have fun with you. We can learn about you. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we can laugh, that we can uh, be amazed and convicted, and all the things that happen in relationship with each other, we can have with you. I pray today, God, that uh, anything that's distracting folks, anything that's keeping them from connecting with you and, and really experiencing more of you than they ever had before would just be diminished. I thank you, God, that we can be present right now, that we can be here, and I'm excited that, uh, that you're here with us. We give you all the glory for all that's about to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. So before the face of God, uh, here's a couple things that I think are really important for us to realize uh, today as we talk about um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One thing we're, we're, we need to realize is this is not um, a series on the Trinity. 
Uh, now, it, it isn't that we don't believe in the Trinity. We do here 100%. It's just that we're not spending time trying to explain this thing uh, in this particular series. We are really, truly talking about each of the different manifestations of God without ever diminishing that they are one. Uh, one way to maybe understand this is I am both a uh, father to my daughter when she's in the room. I'm a husband to my wife when she's in the room. And I'm a son to my mother when she's in the room. Sometimes I'm only one, but I'm always all, and I'm a mix of everything in between, uh, depending on, again, who's in the room, without ever not being the other one. So if that utterly explains it all to you, then awesome. You're far more brilliant than I am. But the Trinity in and of itself is very important for one specific reason when it comes to the gospel. I'm going to give this to you, and you can write it down, and then you can go have coffee with somebody and hopefully blow their minds. But here's the most important thing to know. I believe, this is, this is what I believe um, about the Trinity that's so important. We, as a Christian faith, are the only belief system on the planet who believe we were created uh, out of love or, bef- or uh, after love existed. All other belief systems believe there was a God, there was a deity, who created us as creatures and then showed love to us. We don't believe that. Uh, All throughout the Bible, that is proclaimed that God is love. And if God is love and God existed prior to us, it means that love existed prior to us. Like a husband and a wife create a child out of love, we were created out of love as well. Now, you may think at first, well, why is that so important? Well, it's very important for one simple reason, is that in that in all belief systems, everyone knows love doesn't exist in a vacuum. It takes two people to have love. You don't, you don't just sit and, 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 and serve. You have, you know, I'm serving right now. I'm serving. No, you're not. But I want to serve. I think about serving. I, I, I think I'd be good at serving. No. Serving exists when you serve. Love exists when you love. What's so important to realize about a belief system that says we were created out of love is that love has to exist prior to us. The only way for love to exist prior to us is if God exists in three parts showing love between all of them. So the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father and Son love the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves the Father and Son. They are three separate and yet three together beings who then can exist for all time prior to us, therefore love exists for all time prior to us, therefore once we exist, we are an expression of that always existing love. (laughs) Right? Okay. Yeah, 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 I stole all that. So... Uh, but, but it's very important that you understand it. It's very important that you understand it because that's the, that is the real tent pole of our faith, right? You know when you go camping and it's that first tent pole that determines where you're going to camp? You can like put one by the river and you can't change your mind. The other three are going to go somewhere around that. Uh, somewhere around that, but somewhere around that. This idea of the Trinity and of love existing and of three being one is incredibly important to understanding everything else. This is not a service on the Trinity, but without understanding that, as I talk about the Father, you may start to think I'm separating them from the Son and from the Holy Spirit, and I'm not. But I really want to talk about the Father. And I really want to just sit inside the role that 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 manifestation of God plays in all of our lives. Amen? Okay, okay. Um, Yeah, I hope that... (laughs) Did that sign well, Jan? Did that come across really well? Yeah, your face was like this, like... Like, so... (laughs) <laughs> wow, well, bummer. Okay, so let's talk about the Father. Uh, if you were to take all the verses and kind of summarize them in the Bible talking about the Father, this is what they would say. God the Father is the fountain of divine love. He is the source of the encouragement we receive in the scriptures. 
in answers to our prayers, in the grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and in all the other blessings we receive. The big common theme here is that he is the source of all. He is to be served, I used this quote a couple weeks ago, as the object of all. He is the one to whom we respond with love, prayers, worship, and adoration. He is the one to whom we proclaim, you are, as the song says, worthy. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is the role that God the Father plays. Without diminishing any of the other roles, this is the role that he plays. The call to worthiness, a call to holiness, a call to, to serving, a call to recognition, a call to adoration. He plays that role, and it is an all-important role, for it is like that tenth pole. The beginning of all understanding of me existing is, of course, understanding that he exists. There is a constant biblical call all throughout Scripture to seek the face of the Father. We don't seek the face of the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus' physical body is no longer here with us, so we don't seek the face of Jesus. We seek the face of the Father. And all throughout Scripture, it says, seek his face, seek his face, seek his face. Psalm 27, 8 says, my heart says of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. 1 Chronicles 16.11 and Psalm 105.4 both reiterate, look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Psalm 17.15 says, as for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face when I awake. I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Now that particular verse, I love that last phrase, satisfied with seeing your likeness, should give us a clue to all the other verses when it comes to seeking the face of God because we miss what we're really seeing here when we experience this. See, when you get to heaven, let me just give you some, uh, some, some, <laughs> some thoughts about heaven by Pastor Danny. Here's some interesting things. There's all kinds of descriptions about heaven, but the face of God seems to be the most important and most constant one, and here's why I think. I think when you get to heaven, it won't be the robes that fill the temple, or the temple itself, or the choir of angels, or whatever else you envision that heaven will be about. What will be so mind-altering about heaven, for me, will be walking into the throne room of God, looking into the face of the one who always has been and always will be, and seeing it as familiar. See, have you ever sat with a child that realized one day how much they looked like you? One of my daughters recently, she's about seven, she just kind of walked in the room and then she kind of stopped and I, I think I might have been shaving, and she walked up. This was Elena, who looks the most like me of my three children. And she stopped up, and, and, and she, uh, she kind of looked, and she looked at herself. And I'll never forget, she kind of called me down, and she was like, man, do you look like me? <laughs> and I was like, I think you look like me, actually. I think when you see the face of God, or when you're called to seek the face of God, what you're doing is actually calling to realign yourself in the universe because when you look into the face of God, the first thing you might inappropriately say is, wow, you look a lot like me. To which God, of course, would lovingly say, I think you look like me. See, we're all created in the image of God. Do you ever let that soak in, that we look like God? That, that we are expressions of him, that, that the way in which we move and breathe and are, it's all, it's all very minute, but still expressions of him and who he is. When we're called to seek the face of God, God, we're called to realign ourselves with purpose. We're called to realign ourselves with something greater than ourselves. We're called to actually discover once and for all where we came from. And we see it in his familiar gaze as he smiles back, because God smiles, folks. It's his invention. And we say, hey, I know you. And he goes, yeah, you do. 
It's just a profound special thought when it comes to seeking the face of the Father. And that's the face, I believe, that, uh, that we'll recognize ourselves in. Let's think about faces for a moment. Uh, faces are a unique thing because faces can be really um, deceptive. You, you might see a face and go, I'm guessing this about that person or guessing this about that person. But then when you get to know them, suddenly their face changes. Let me show you some of the most familiar faces in my life, and I pull them right off our website. This is our church staff. These people are all people that have sacrificed to be here, to be with us. This is Pastor Tom Lovelace. The only two faces you won't see up here are Dave's and mine because you, we are the ones you see the most of. I want to show you some people that you don't see a lot of. You've been seeing more of Tom. Uh, Tom is our executive pastor, and uh, Tom is a very fatherly face for me. Um, I have, I want to admit openly, been in trouble uh, by Tom a few times, and every single time Tom has his father face on where I'm in trouble, something inside me just wants to go stand in the corner. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, I'll just like... I just, I just, I just, it, it's just a, it's a great experience because I feel very accountable. I feel, uh, but I also feel very loved. This man, uh, for me, represents uh, that face in my life uh, at this season. So next. This is Dr. Larry Shelton. This is the actual face of wisdom. Um, I shared last service that this is also, uh, from a biblical context, the actual face of what Elijah looked like right here. This is, <laughs> this this is, this is uh, I don't know anyone um, smarter than him, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful. He is literally always the smartest man in the room, uh, and yet just really exudes humility and wisdom. Um, this man is a retired seminary professor, and he's actually the one, the last one I talked to about the, the Trinity who uh, told me some of the stuff I told you about being a son and a, and a father. He's also the one who taught me all the stuff I just told you about love coming prior to us, and he told it all over a cup of coffee and exclamated that exact conversation with, but in the end, I don't really know. <laughs> I was like, I, my mind was just dripping out of my ears, uh, and I was like, but you just said all these things. They go, yeah, but that's just all I do know. I don't really know, uh, and I, I hope one day to, uh, to grow up and, uh, you know, be just like him, so really special guy in my life. Another one, this Keith Walther. Uh, when we say the word pastor here at Kesed, this is who your children think of. Um, this is a man that's not seen very much. This is a man who plays a very rare role in churches. There's not a lot of men who oversee children's ministries. We think it's significant and important. Um, he is really, really special. And uh, he is a very rare, rare gem when it comes to ministry as a whole. And he sacrificed uh, from day one of this church to be a part of it. Left an entire flourishing career to come here and, uh, and minister to and play and, uh, and serve your children. And uh, that's what the face of pastor looks like to all of your babies, and probably will for a very long time. Was that Keith? Were you amen in yourself, Keith? Are you in here? <laughs> this guy. I don't think it was. <laughs> He's in children's. Chris. Uh, this is Pastor Chris Potter. This is my right-hand guy. This is the man who deals with all the messy stuff. Uh, when we started this church, uh, we didn't have enough money to pay him, so he cleaned pools. True story. Uh, he cleaned at night, during the day, and whenever he could. So if you have a pool that needs to be cleaned, you should talk to Chris because he's really, really good at it. Uh, but uh, he's, he's just a, a true, true shepherd of the people. He also uh, helps me manage some of the pulpit load, and, uh, and he just got married. So uh, he's, uh, he's doing well in life, and uh, I love that guy. So that's uh, Potter to those of you who know him well. So uh, yeah, that's him. Next. This is Alyssa, and Alyssa's in the back, and Alyssa is our director of creative experience, and I just submitted that title right now. 
Basically, what she does is I come up with these ideas and she makes all of them happen. And she's the face I look into when the ideas don't work, either because what I came up with was too much or they just didn't work. Um, Alyssa's really, really good at telling me no, but rarely does. And she is really in charge of much of the stuff that I personally execute. And uh, she's really incredible. And uh, we, I married her and her husband, and we just celebrated our anniversary, second anniversary, like last month, right? I sent them a text that morning, happy anniversary to us. So I was, I was pretty excited. I never got a dinner or anything. I heard you two went to dinner, though, but not me. So we can talk about that after. <laughs> Next. This lady. This is Bernadine Shelsky. She leads our women's ministry here, and she is my actual mom. Uh, I realize a lot of you don't believe that, like, oh, you call her mama. No, she is my mom. So I, I, uh, she uh, has been sacrificing for me to be able to live this dream for a very long time. And uh, she's also the only one in the church who comes in, sometimes shuts the door, and has um, very specific hard talks with me. Uh, and um, she's just a really beautiful part of what we get to do. And, of course, I love this face. And I look a bit like her. Uh, I look a little more like my dad. Uh, but, but I do, uh, I like the face overall. Overall. <laughs> Next. This is Monty Wade. Monty Wade is, uh, <laughs> she's probably the most deceptive face on the screen today. You would never think that what this woman could accomplish, she could accomplish. She claims to be four foot eleven and a half. She is absolutely four foot ten and maybe a squeak. Uh, she, she though, it doesn't matter a bit because she will climb up on a footstool and tell you what for. Monty uh, helps with all kinds of things around here in our church. And uh, the best part of Monty, if you get to know her, and I hope you experience this, all of you, if you get her frustrated, she talks with her hands, but if you get her really frustrated, she, her hands get higher and higher and higher. I've actually tested this one time. I got her frustrated, and I just kept pushing, and by the end, she's like up here, like talking in my face, just in my face. And I was like, okay, and then I calmed down, and her hands went down, and it's, um, I was at McMinimins with her husband. I think it was Ryan who discovered it. We came around the corner and saw a picture of this woman painted on the side of the wall, and now that is my phone uh, ringer when Monty calls me because it looks kind of like Monty talking with her hands. But at this point, she's still okay. No one's going to get hurt. <laughs> All right, last slide. This is my wife. This is my wife, Erin. And uh, this is the most beautiful face in the entire church. And this particular lady um, has sacrificed more than I'm ever allowed to share uh, from this stage per our agreement that... Uh, we would do whatever it took in order to be the people God called us to be. And obviously, I wouldn't be who I am today without her. And uh, she's in the back, and she's a really special, special person. This is the face I wake up to. And uh, the thing about faces that's unique about all these faces is, is they all, when you do the ones like this, they present really well. But when you really know a face, you also get other aspects of that face. And I, I was able, just through the gift of God, to capture a picture of my wife that I got permission to share but is rarely seen, and so I'd like to share that with you now in just a moment. Uh, earlier this week, uh, my wife and I have a morning routine that's pretty simple. We try to wake up about an hour before our girls, and, uh, and I will go make coffee, and she will kind of fluff the bed and pick up, and then we'll have a coffee together, usually in our bedroom before anybody else is up, just talking about the day and what have you. Well, this earlier this week, my wife and I were doing this, and I was on my computer uh, just checking about my day and doing things, and she was sitting next to me, and she was on her iPhone. And it was time for her to get up, and she set her very large iPhone on the covers above her knees. And as she got out of bed, she flipped the covers, 
and her iPhone flew up in the air, and I promise it was like slow motion, smacked the screen of my computer and did this. And I sat there like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. It looked like a joke. It actually looked like it was like an iPhone screensaver or like a, like a, like a MacBook Pro screensaver. Like, oh, you have a cracked screen. Uh, it, it was brutal. And the best part is when I went to take a picture uh, of the thing in order to start immediately the replacement process, this is the picture I caught of my wife. So <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is that is just you don't get to see that very often I'll tell you what my wife does not mess up that often but um I love that I love that face and I love that that I know her well enough thank you I love that I know her well enough to to recognize that's her that's her I'm truly sorry I messed up face and and we all have that right we have that about our faces and and here's the thing we're supposed to have that with God we're supposed to seek God's face to the point that we just don't find it, but we find it and we know it and we, and we see it and we recognize it. I pray all the time here. I hope that you feel comforted by God. I hope that you feel convicted by God. I hope that you feel lifted up by God. I hope some of you feel tore down by God. I hope you feel refurbished and refreshed. I hope you feel restored and renewed. Those are all different aspects of God that as I've come to know him, I can experience through knowing his face. There are times when God is fatherly. I mean really fatherly. Like Danny, enough, son. There are times when God is incredibly mother-like. And he puts his hands on my shoulder and he says, I got you. There are times when I mess up and I go to God with that face that my wife had. And I know his face in return is, I got this. There are times when God's serious. There are times when God's hilarious. But none of these things can be seen unless we're willing to engage him and do what scripture says, and that is to meet with him face to face. And that's my hope today. There was a point inside the story of Israel when God wanted to really drive home this idea that he wanted to be known, uh, in a sense, relationally face to face. He wants to be known. He wants to be seen that way. And he had taken these people and he had freed them from slavery from Egypt. And he had dr driven them out into the desert. And, and before I express kind of what God did with them out in the desert, please see Everything in Scripture is a prophecy or a palette for something else God's going to be painting later. When God takes the people of Israel and frees them from bondage, from slavery, from their system, from their culture, from their technology, from their way of being, generation after generation after generation of Israelite had grown up in Egypt. They were Egyptian throughout. They just weren't treated that way. When God frees them and takes them out into the unknown, where there is nothing left but him, please realize that is not just a salvation story of the Israelites being freed to be the nation they're called to be. It is your and my salvation story. When God breaks you free from this system that I'm in bondage to, that I think I belong to this world, that I think that the, the pressures and the drives and the things that break me down, that keep me coming day after day underneath the whip of my own devices, when God frees me from that, many times it feels like he's driving me out into a desert of incredible unknownness where it's too hot during the day and it's too cold at night and none of my friends are there and this is not cool and why am I here that's the picture so if you have decided to follow God and you feel nothing but sand beneath your feet you're in the right place 
If you've decided to follow God, but you still hear the master's call, you still jump out of bed and you serve, yes, sir, yes, sir, then my friend, you might still be a slave. You might still be in bondage. You might still, like those Israelite people, be living in a kingdom that's not your own because you're too afraid to go out into the desert and experience all the Father wants to give you. These people, though, God did this. And he drove them out into the desert. And once they were out in the desert, they did just that. They did just what I would do, what you would do. They cried and they whined and they said, it'd be better for us to go back. And God said, no, it wouldn't. I want to meet with you face to face. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build something that represents my presence in your life. At this point, God had made a covenant with his children. As a sign of his covenant, he had the Israelites make a box according to his own design in which to place things reminding God of his worthiness. Okay, this is God the Father. This is all three, but this is really, really specific around the kinds of connection that God the Father wants to have with us. He designs a chest. This chest was to be housed in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle in the desert and eventually in the temple when it was built in Jerusalem many years later. This chest is known as the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is an artist's rendition based on the drawings in Scripture. And the Ark of the Covenant has been lost for many, many years. Indiana Jones almost found it, but it was gone after that. <laughs> so close. Indiana got it so close. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box, not quite four feet in length and a little over two feet in depth and width. It was constructed of wood and plated with gold. Its lid of gold, of solid gold, was called the mercy seat, again, everything in Scripture ties to everything else in Scripture. The mercy seat is the place where the sacrifice was actually made, where the blood was poured over. And later on, Christ would be the only one who could sit in the mercy seat, carrying the, the benefits of the Ark of the Covenant forward into the new covenant. Inside the Ark were placed three objects. These objects were the continuing and reminding evidence that God worked among them. The first was the tablets of stone. This recognized that God commanded them, that God led them, that God worked with them. The second was the jars of manna. This reminded them of God's provision. And lastly was the rod that bud. And this was the rod that, of course, saved them. These were the three things God the Father had placed in the Ark of the Covenant that were placed in the Holy of Holies, that were placed in the, the tent of tabernacle where God resided, where people could come and come outside and actually meet with the presence of or the face of God. The ark provided a center, giving a hard historical focus to the revealed character or worthiness of the God whom they worshiped. It wasn't just a system. It was a way of interacting. It was a way of seeing these very fatherly things. Fathers command, they set down rules. Fathers, of course, provide, and fathers are supposed to save or protect. This is God the Father expressing to you who he wants to be and telling these people who left the bondage of what they thought was freedom and went out into a world that started to consume them. Because don't think this world doesn't still have deserts in it, spiritually speaking. And God says, don't fear. I will protect you. I will provide for you. And I will give you guidance. And so for generations they met. For generations, a priest would go in and, and actually be led by God and have, have connection with God. Exodus chapter 25, 21, and 22 gives a description of God's own design and how he thinks the relationship will work. God says, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you 
And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. How incredible is that? This is where I'll meet you. This is where I'll see you. They didn't say, we need a place to meet with you now that we're in the desert. God said, you need a place to meet with me now that you're in the desert. Now that the distractions are gone, you need a place to connect with me. Jesus Christ, by the way, still says that. Come out, follow me into the desert. I'll be there. I will command you. I will provide for you. I'll keep you safe. But if you want to stay in Egypt, which some of you spiritually want to, you're never going to discover his voice because it will be lost in the crowd of the things that hold you instead of being held by the one who created you, who wants to experience life with you. Some of you, you need to walk out into the desert. You need to experience the worthiness of God. Fast forward 480 years or so. Uh, King Saul has just died. And while King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, they finally have a home. They finally have a, a, a palace. They have a place in which God has placed them. Uh, king Saul has just died. But just prior to him dying, the Philistines had stolen the ark. They stole the ark uh, for a total of seven months. And the best part of this is uh, God plagued them so much that they didn't just call and say, hey, come get your ark. They actually brought it back, <laughs> which I think is profound, right? Can you imagine? Like, it's the Philistines. Yeah, we don't, we don't want this anymore. We're good. We're good. So they, they brought the ark back. But when they brought the ark back, it ended up being marooned for there was no place for it in the new nation of Israel, the new founded nation of Israel. And so they put it at a priest's house by the name of Abinadab. And Abinadab had two little boys, and uh, their names were Uzzah and Ahio. And they were being trained in the ways of being a priest. And immediately, of course, all became keepers of the ark. How sweet is that? Like, what do you do? I'm keeper of the Ark of the Covenant, bro. Like, I mean, that's, that's incredible. So these men lived under Abinadab and, uh, and uh, their father, and they took care of the Ark. Eventually, Abinadab dies, and Uzzah and his brother become the keepers of the Ark. Eventually, as I said, Saul dies, and David becomes king. And then David realizes, here I am without the Ark of the Covenant in my city, the city of God. We need to get it here. And so he calls Uzzah, and he says, Uzzah, time to bring the ark home. And Uzzah goes, yes, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I mean, I've been trained in the, I'm the keeper of the ark. Ohio, he's okay, but I'm the keeper of the ark. I know stuff and I, I'll do it, king. And he says, okay, what are we going to do? And this is when they go into Alyssa Danny mode, right? We're going to plan an experience. We're going to plan an experience. I want hundreds of tambourines. All right, hundreds of tambourines. I want Lear everywhere. I want so many castanets, people don't even know what to think. All right, all right, how many? I want 30 thousand of our finest soldiers to surround this thing as celebration. 30,000. Do you imagine how long it would take to gather 30,000 people without email? <laughs> it's a serious amount of planning going into this thing. Okay? The day arrives. David shows up. He's like, I'm just going to wear. I'm going to come out in front. And I'm going to dance. I'm going to wear just a tunic, right? Because I don't want any distraction. And I'm going to dance my face off. And news is like, awesome. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get us a brand new built cart. What? It's a brand new technology, okay? Carts are new. Brand new cart, like the Philistines. Yeah, the Philistines move their arcs all the time. Arcs existed everywhere. It was part of a religious system. It made sense. They move them all the time. It's a brand new arc, never been carried by anything else. Brand new rope, brand new fastenings, even brand new, never used ox, right? <laughs> so they've never carried anything else. Okay, okay. We're going to put the ark on there, and that way we can get faster to where we want to go. It's safer. It's better. Uzzah, you are brilliant. You're in charge. I'm in charge. I'm so excited. Okay, I'll see you Thursday. See you then. It's exactly how the conversation went, by the way. 
Uzzah goes out. He makes his plans. David makes his plans. The time of the ark entry is near. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. This is just happening. This is so epic. What a great start to a service, right, Alyssa? I mean, it's your own parade with the ark of God in the center. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's excited. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were on point. They were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps. And there's all those tambourine players and castanets and cymbals. And when they came up to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Now, I don't know about you, but if I planned an epic parade with Alyssa, and her and I had some serious thought put into it, like you're talking months from now, and you all showed up, and it was like, go band. Go tambourine players, which why don't we have tambourine players anymore? But go tambourine players, tambourine chorus, all 300 of you. Go, 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 go oxen, go everybody. And then Alyssa was, we were, we were just celebrating and happening. And next thing you know, word came, yeah, Alyssa died. That puts a quick end to my parade. <laughs> I mean, what, how does that even finish up? Like everybody's like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Choo, 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 boom, God kills Alyssa or Uzzah. Boom, down to the ground, right beside the ark. I mean, how do you stop that? Like, that's 30,000 people who just stopped. That's Super Bowl Sunday, and it's just over. Like, hey, shut it, shut it down, shut it down. You know where it got to David because he's at the front. Uzzah just died. What are you talking about, Uzzah just died? Uzzah just died. You go back, and there's Uba just crumpled on the ground. I'd like to imagine he died really slow, too, just kind of wiggling around, like, got, you know, like, really to make a scene, right? By the end, we were joking. He looks like one of those creatures from Little Mermaid whose voice got stolen. He's just sitting there blinking, like, ah, ah, right? And David's like, oh, my God, put him out of his misery. Oh, I don't like, I don't like this. This is wrong. What's happening? What is happening? There is a dead body next to the Ark of the Covenant struck down by God. And all we're trying to do is bring glory and, and bring him home. What is happening? And righteously, David says, I don't know what to do anymore. And he goes home and he's angry. It actually says the Ark just sat there until someone actually realized, we can't just leave the Ark here. So this is what it says. And David was afraid the Lord of the Lord that day and said, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. Can you imagine being Obed-Edom? You're out drinking your tea. You're excited. The ark's passing in front of your house. You're like, I got front row seats. I don't have to go anywhere. This is awesome. Boom. God strikes somebody down. Obed-Edom's like, oh, oh. Sees David run up. Next thing you know, there's a big crowd. Everybody's talking. David looks at you. You live here? Nope. Do you live here? Yeah, that's my house. Ark's coming in your front room. I don't want that in my front room. <laughs> it just killed that dude. It's going in your front room. Open the door. This is not right. Put it right over there by the TV. I cannot believe this. 
three months, three months the ark sat in Obadiah's front room. Like he's drinking coffee, trying to watch his shows, and it's just the ark with these golden things. It's crazy. But it says this little phrase, which I love, right at the end, and the Lord blessed Obadiah and all his household. It says Obadiah's zucchinis grew three times the size they normally do. The next morning, just everything's bigger. Everything's better. Suddenly there's blessings everywhere. All his animals are doing well. Suddenly that leak in his roof is fixed. It's just all better. So but Edom starts to realize this ain't such a bad deal. Word gets back to David. David realizes there's something here. God's not upset with him. He's blessing this guy, but he killed this guy. What happened? What's wrong? And so David does the same thing we're all supposed to do. He goes back to Scripture. He tries to discover what went wrong and why God's wrath was poured forth when all we wanted to do was, was celebrate God. And he goes back to Scripture, and he discovers a very, very simple, simple verse in 2 Samuel, uh, sorry, Exodus 25, 12, and 15, when the Lord is talking about the ark and how it shall be moved. The Lord says, You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. It goes on later to say, and if you touch the ark, you will die. And so what happened? Uzzah, and then, so, and then obviously David, became casual and comfortable with the ark. They became people who could not see that God still demanded his true ways of relationship and they became people instead that through their casualness thought they would use modern technology and whatever else was happening around their world to honor the ways of God. And so when the oxen and the cart stumbled and Uzzah reaches out to touch and, and control and, and, and do the best thing he could, he didn't realize nor did David nor anyone else that they were in a situation they should have never been in in the first place. How many times have you tried to lead something in your life, but you should have never been there in the first place? You're dating someone you know you're not supposed to be dating. And you're like, yeah, I'm just doing the best I can to, to really have virtue and live by the right standards. But you know it's wrong. And yet you're trying to do the right thing in this wrong situation. How many times have you tried to do that at work or with your family or this other situation because you put yourself there by not following Scripture, by not listening to Spirit, and so suddenly you're awakened to this reality that there's a problem, that there's a pothole in your life philosophy. And because you got to that point in your life on a cart instead of the hard way being carried through the ways of God, you suddenly are stuck. And suddenly God is reminding you, hey, like a father does, this isn't what I asked you to do. Yeah, but God, this is how they do it. This is how the pagans do it. This is new technology. God's like, yeah, I'm, I'm aware, but it's not what I asked you to do. Yeah, but God, everybody sleeps together before they're married. It's like what we do. Well, I get it. It's just not what I asked you to do. But God, nobody gives money to churches anymore. That's all they're about. Yeah, I get it. But it is what I asked you to do. God, nobody wants to attend this or do that or say no to this. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. But it's not, or it is, what I asked you to do. See, when we go back to Scripture like David did, 
then suddenly we can recognize that God is not trying to drive us into the ground with the power of his presence. He's trying to father us to a better life. If Uzzah and David had not been casual with God, the ark would have went there flawlessly. With the right men carrying God's uh, home at that time the right way. Today, we have that responsibility. See, today the mercy seat of God lies within our hearts through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's a way in which we are supposed to reach our world. And some of us in this room, your biggest reason and way to reach God is to bring friends to Sunday morning. I just want you to know, according to the Bible, that's not what you're supposed to do. Now, bringing people to church is great because we learn things and we develop and hopefully through the Holy Spirit we're convicted. But Christ died so that you don't have to come to a temple and sit in front of a priest who then tells you what God wants you to do with your life. He died so that you can experience his mercy seat in your car on the way to work, in the mornings during your quiet time, at church, through worship, through whatever it is. He died so that you could carry his covenant love through you to this world, but you've got to do it the way he's asked you to do it, in a way that proclaims him worthy. Now, I recognize that, that some people in here, for you to suddenly live a lifestyle that's worthy of God would mean you'd have to change everything. And I recognize that some of it just doesn't seem very practical. And so I'm not here today to tell you to do that. Okay? I, I want you to be a part, and I accept you how you are. What I am here to tell you today is that we serve a God who loves to walk with you through whatever process of holiness you're going to be walking through, who would be more than happy to walk with you as long as you're willing to walk it. And he's willing to convict you and comfort you He's willing to receive your worship and your brokenness. He's willing to engage with you beyond anything you maybe have ever experienced in your life. He's willing to, to walk you through addiction. He's willing to, to walk you through uh, your character cracks and flaws. He's willing to walk you through pride and selfishness. He's willing to walk you through whatever may take a lifetime of walking. But you have to decide to do it how he wants because I can promise you this. The new technology of this sermon or the podcast or a quick book read or a prayer after service, that's not the way he asks you to do it. He wants you to engage in relationship and he wants you to seek his face. Paul was a man who had to transform his whole life. He had to change everything and it took a long time. In the end, once Paul sought and saw the face of God, these are the words that he wrote. Ephesians 3 14 through 21, and may these charge you and encourage you and convict you in your heart. I know they did me. Paul says, for this reason, this reason of knowing the Father's face, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the, thank, all the saints, listen to these words, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, in this room right now, that prayer is resonating with so many people. There is tearing happening. There is conviction happening. There is healing happening, encouragement happening. My prayer, God, is that people in this room would decide once and for all, not because of a fad or because of technology, that they would decide, God, to follow you in your ways to you, for you. That people in this room today would see your face for the first time. That they would experience your presence like they never have before. That as we sit inside this moment, they would wrestle with who they are today, right now. They would look at the things that they've led versus the things that you've led. They would realize just how much of this wonderful life they still have to live, this one and only life. And they would deem it valuable. That they would deem it important enough to bring it to you who are worthy of it all. God, I ask in this room there would be more than just a song, but there would be a spirit because of your scripture that transforms lives. May we, Lord, experience the presence of sitting before the face of the Father. Thank you for this church, for this family, and for your presence. 